Welcome to Modern Prophets, where we chronicle the riveting stories and hard-won wisdom of individuals with addiction who have found recovery. They called the cops on me and could have given me another DUI. I also was not allowed to be driving because my license was suspended. Um, but I went to I went to jail again and then it was a bit of a wake-up call. I got this, you know, order from the judge to go to rehab, you know? It was like, this has happened, you know, back-to-back. So it looks like alcohol might be a problem. But I wasn't convinced that I was an alcoholic or anything, you know? Um, That's Celine, this week on the Modern Prophets podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Ryan Keneally. I am your host. Welcome or welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have you here. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying or finding value in these episodes, please be sure to leave a review, follow so you don't miss an episode, and share the podcast with others. Today I give you the story of Celine, a young actress who, by a power greater than herself, found a way into recovery from complex co-occurring disorders. Borderline personality disorder, addiction, bulimia, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Celine fell in love with weed, but it was alcohol that got her into trouble. No stranger to the dark side of addiction, Celine had a few wake-up calls. Stormy relationships, driving under the influence, suicide attempts, jails, hospitals, and psych wards, none of which were enough to convince her she had a problem with drugs or alcohol. Now, at 31 years old, with almost six years of sobriety, Celine recollects the vivid details of her experience and chronicles everything it took to pull her back from the brink of an addiction that nearly eroded her life. In today's hyper-medicated, overstimulated, pleasure-saturated world, I believe that individuals like Celine, individuals with addiction who have found recovery, are modern-day prophets that we ignore to our own demise. We live in a time of unprecedented access to high-reward, high-dopamine stimuli. Drugs, sex, news, food, shopping, gambling, social media, the list is endless. Everything has been drugified, made more potent, more novel, more abundant, more reinforcing. We're living in a world that increasingly primes us all for the problem of addiction, and it is my hope that through these stories, people are able to see themselves, connect, relate, and perhaps find a modicum of peace with the compulsive overconsumption that afflicts many, if not all of us. I hope that individuals currently suffering are inspired by a story of courage and hope that resonates so deeply, perhaps it even motivates them to stop using and finally seek help. Celine, welcome to Modern Profits. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. We're so lucky to have you and your wisdom. And more than anything, I just really appreciate your willingness and courage to share some really vulnerable parts of your life. So like my first guest on the podcast, John, our connection is through my older sister. Mm -hmm. And I 
also already know a bit about your experience. Not everything Mm -hmm. just yet, but from what I do know, your story is important and powerful to say the very least. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to dive into it more deeply. Thank you. So would you mind starting us off by talking a bit about the beginning of your life, whatever the beginning means to you? Mm-hmm. I was born, um, I was born a baby, <laughs> and <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was born in a, a really loving, wonderful family that I later appreciated and, and mm-hmm. discovered that they were actually very wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um but I was I was just ultra ultra sensitive even from the beginning. Um, I look back actually, and I, I think that this is kind of like I pieced together later that this happened around the same time. So I think when I was six months old, I had to get tubes put in my ears because I was having ear infections, and I realized that. Like later in my life, I realized that that was the same time that my mom was writing her dissertation. So that's like a really intense process to get your PhD, you know, and um, must have been really stressful for her. So I feel like at six months already, I was like, you know, my ears were getting infections because I felt like I wasn't getting hurt or something, you know, like it mm-hmm. felt it feels symbolic looking mm-hmm. back, you know, so um yeah, that's that's kind of how it started. And then um, I have three older brothers and a younger sister who I was desperate for because my brothers were, you know, a lot. Um, and they, I love them and they love me, but they they bullied me and they were pretty mean. And um, you know, they would they would hit me and call me fat and ugly and you know um, the things that brothers do (laughs) but when I was four years old um my my brother my middle brother was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder called FOP and um it's where the muscle in the body turns to bone so it's like like it calcifies you know Mm -hmm. um yeah, so, like, when there's trauma to it. So we couldn't hit him or anything. Like, we couldn't. Um, What's the long-term prognosis of? FOP. Long-term? Uh, well, it's it's different, you know, um, for different people. But he got to live a normal life until he was 10. He played soccer and all these different things. Wow. Um, but I've seen people, you know, not, not a lot of doctors know what it is. It's, like, one in two million people have it and um there's like 700 cases in the united states you said he lives and lived a normal life until he turned 10 yeah so he was he was normal until he turned 10 and then he started limping okay and um no one could really figure it out out you know no one knew what it was so somehow some doctor it was like some miracle that some doctor knew that there was like a missing joint in the toe and that's the like telltale sign of fop I imagine that there were a lot of emotions involved with that diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the prognosis is ultimately that he, you know, loses mobility over time, Mm -hmm. and um, which he has, and he, you know, he broke his leg and his hip in the same year, actually the first year that I got sober. So it was pretty intense. Um, That was really hard, but 
Yeah, it, it, so it's limited his mobility significantly. Like he was able to drive up until a point and he had special like, you know, extra tools and stuff and now he can't drive. Now he's in a wheelchair, you know, all these things. What type of an impact did that have on you growing up? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I didn't know I was too little. I was four mm-hmm. years old and I didn't really know what was going on. And I... I, I mean, this is what I was told that I was like the barometer <laughs> for the family. Okay, explain what that means. When I think of like the barometer child of the family, mm-hmm. it's like the person who's picking up on all that totally. tension. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And so I I was picking up on it, you mm-hmm. know, and I, I reacted very intensely, you know, yeah. and so yeah. I would throw temper tantrums and fits and like throw myself on the floor I would kick holes in walls like at four years old (laughs) you know right um so they were just like what the fuck is this demon child you know um (laughs) (laughs) she's crazy so yeah they they like sent me to therapy pretty early on I think I was like five or six okay and um yeah I was like seven or eight then when they they said I had ADHD um so it all it affected me pretty significantly you know mm-hmm. um I and then because I you know reacted I'm sure you know about like fi- family dynamics and stuff like that so I was the scapegoat I was the the black sheep as I told you um mm-hmm. so you know a lot of things were a lot of things were pinned on <laughs> on me um yeah go ahead so walk me through your struggles with addiction as you're growing up dealing with you know being the scapegoat for the family a diagnosis of ADHD yeah so um so yeah diagnosed with ADHD when I was eight my brothers were all my whole family is all very academic very Mm -hmm. scholarly you know my mom has a phd in literature my my dad is a lawyer and and you know they went to my dad went to stanford my mom to berkeley like Mm -hmm. you know um so my brothers all did really well in school and so we all had the same teachers because we went to a a private catholic school which is another (laughs) another you know caveat um you grew up in in los angeles right no no um Oh man, I'd be such a mess if I grew up in Los Angeles. <laughs> I would be way, way worse. I, I think. I mean, like, kudos to you for growing up in LA. So where um, did you grow up? So I grew up in in Fresno, California. I mean, either okay. it could be because I was in Fresno that maybe that made me. Who knows? God knows. But um, yeah. So I I was always getting in trouble. I was always like talking in class always getting sent outside, you know, just like disrupting the class. And they were expecting me to be like my brothers. High expectations, big shoes to fill. So um, I did not fill those shoes. <laughs> I was very I was very disruptive. You know, I was always talking. I was like making my, my friends around me laugh, you know, mm-hmm. and um, getting sent to the principal's office and, you know, just stuff like that very ADHD so uh yeah I didn't do well I almost failed eighth grade um because I because of like a religion class um 
and it was because I didn't turn it. I just didn't turn things in, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, going into addiction, alcohol. So uh, sixth grade actually was when I developed an eating disorder. So mm-hmm. I was overweight and um, my parents told me to, you know, because I was complaining about it constantly. Right. And they wanted me to go into Weight Watchers. I was like 11 years old. And um, which is a little crazy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then I, I did it really well. I did Weight Watchers very well. <laughs> and I lost a lot of weight. And um, at first I, I wasn't eating and I was pretty emaciated. I was like skin and bones. And then um, my then my parents were very upset with me because, you know, it was a bad reflection on them to have somebody so skinny and like, what are they doing wrong? Mm-hmm. I think that's often what it felt like was um, that appearances were very important to them. You know, so when I would hear about like so-and-so has a son who has a daughter who's an addict, you know, it was like, it was like, oh my God, like that's horrible. Yeah, Mm -hmm. very taboo. So um, yeah, developed bulimia. And then um, I didn't try alcohol or anything until I was uh, maybe 13 and it was actually at my aunt's, uh, was it her like 50th birthday? And, uh, she had jello shots, (laughs) (laughs) which is like very strange because my parents are, are very, uh, you know, very straight laced, but, uh, like they wouldn't have jello shots at their, you know, but she did. And, and, um, so my brother, he wasn't of age yet, but he was drinking jello shots, you know? And so I saw him and I was like, he's doing that. Like, oh, I can do that. You know, maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe it's okay. He's like, not, there's some alcohol in it, but you know, he's not 21. And so then I did. And I, I, I took a couple with my, my cousin and it felt like very weird, like taboo. And weird. like, I was, I was breaking rules, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, always loved to break rules so um that's kind of how it started and then um do you remember what it was about breaking rules that was alluring to you I I think I just hated authority from a very very young Mm -hmm. age I I think you know maybe it had to do with being getting in trouble all the time yeah and uh feeling like I didn't do anything wrong but constantly because i was getting in trouble constantly feeling guilty you like know if you're the scapegoat kind of okay then yeah, exactly let's, let's make that a reality right let's right by that right you want me to be the scapegoat i will be the scapegoat <laughs> you know i'll show you scapegoat um so i was and i did i did show them um but so yeah yeah i um so it started with alcohol started with alcohol and uh and and at this time i was like very heavy in my eating disorder um how did that interact with uh with alcohol with substances in general do you think um interesting well yeah i i would not eat i would make sure that i wasn't i wouldn't eat um all day before i knew i was gonna go out Mm -hmm. you know or before Mm -hmm. i knew um (laughs) <laughs> it's funny actually i i did listen to john and your mm-hmm. podcast and, and he was talking about um how he didn't want to ask people like were they going to be drinking 
tonight like you know you, you wanted to be cool about it you know right. mm-hmm. and so but i remember having this like anxiety around like who's gonna get the alcohol you know and is your brother gonna get it for us you know and how much do we have to pay is it, can it be free you know <laughs> and um <laughs> so because if i knew that i was going somewhere and there would be alcohol i would not eat so that was one way and then in college actually i would um i would throw up while i was drinking like mm-hmm. if we ate at all and if we cuz you would get the drungies you know as as we would call them and you would eat the munchies while you were drunk mm-hmm. um and so we would eat a lot and um i would throw it up and so that looked like I was just sick from alcohol, you know? I see. But I, I would see. keep going. <laughs> I'd just go back to the alcohol. So, and also, you know, I think it obviously, not to my awareness, affected my moods and affected everything that I was experiencing. And so, um, you know, constantly being in this starvation mode. Mm-hmm. Um I was very irritable. I was very discontent, as they they talk about it. Um, restless, irritable discontent. Okay, so you're you're drinking alcohol only at this point, right? Yeah, and at, yes, yes. When does it progress? So in high school, um, very interesting because I uh, so I discovered acting when I was like seventh or eighth grade, um, and I just fell in love and um was also scared of it you know and Mm -hmm. so I kind of would go in and then back out and then in high school I was going through so much turmoil with the eating disorder I mean I would my parents were taking me out of school to go up to Stanford and get care you know during school and I had to kind of lie to everybody and tell everybody that I was just uh like I wasn't allowed like my parents didn't want me to tell people and um i think that was to protect my maybe my psyche i don't know like mm-hmm. looking back probably it's it's not wouldn't have been the best thing at the time you know i think now people are more open about things and like maybe seeking help more um but it was very very taboo no one was talking about eating disorders um so i would tell my friends oh i have like stomach issues you know so i got to check out what's going on stomach issues for years <laughs> you know they never knew what was going on <laughs> like did they ever figure out what was wrong with your stomach because it's been four years i don't know it's weird <laughs> you know? i don't know <laughs> um so stanford you'd think yeah stanford they're <laughs> like not you know not pulling their weight you know when i was um a freshman i was just desperate you know to get out of my head and um I remember praying to God about like give me a sign if I should be an actress you know like um in high school that's that was my freshman year so um I fell in love um and really wanted I I had such shitty grades so I was like how am I gonna how am I gonna get to LA you know through college because that's the only way my parents would support me um is if I went because I was like ready to go to Mm -hmm. LA at 16 like 
ready to drive with my car and like live in my I don't know do this stupid starving artist thing so um my junior year when it was time to kind of look at colleges and stuff um I did you know I didn't know where I was gonna go because I had a really shitty GPA um it was like it was like a 2.5 or something like that okay which is pretty low um and it just didn't it didn't look good and so um my cousin was doing some theater school at uh like summer school at LMU and um we were in LA and we picked her up that summer I I fell in love with the campus and I had this like overwhelming feeling that that's where I was gonna go mm-hmm. and I just knew it I didn't know how you know but I knew it would take hard work. And so I, I really wanted to go. And I had this feeling that the only way, um, I was also very into the law of attraction kind of stuff, like mm-hmm. at 14. <laughs> so uh, I, I was like very curious about, you know, positive thinking and, uh, you know, manifestation and whatever. So um, I had this very deep feeling that I there was no way that I was going to get to LA be an actress go to LMU um if I didn't if I didn't get sober if I didn't um so I was like 16 or 17. Did you feel like you had an, an issue with alcohol at that point 16? Yeah I mean because I would black out all the time why would I would it was just periodic at that point you know I would I would go to parties. I would black out all the time, you know. Um, I didn't even know that that was not a thing, you know. I I thought everyone blacked out. And then, you know, I think also I hung out with alcoholics, you know. I hung out with alcoholics. Um, and that's how they drink too. So I felt like, um, you know, I, I would wake up hungover mm-hmm. and like, in strange places in like and this was in high school and I would like wake up in a stranger's bed you know from the party and it was it just felt incongruent like not in alignment with who I wanted to be mm-hmm. you know and um and I knew that that also included the eating disorder and so mm-hmm. um I worked really hard to I think it was like you know for maybe seven or eight months I was not going to parties I was uh not drinking um I stopped I stopped binging and purging um so I think intuitively I just knew that this was something that I couldn't do like this was something that was affecting my Mm -hmm. my life everyone was getting their letters to get to school uh you know to get to you know they were getting to all their all their dream schools whatever I got a letter and my letter was like we put you on the waiting list Mm -hmm. and so that kind of like set me back a little bit and um I was like fuck it so I started you know I went back to partying and I went back to binging and purging um I was just trying to like accept where I was and that I didn't know where I was going and I got um, a letter from LMU and they were like you've been accepted for the second semester and so mm-hmm. I was like yes 
so you know like what, if, <laughs> what am i gonna do for the the first man and then i was so i was like still kind of a, like upset that it wasn't the way i wanted it mm-hmm. you know and so um so, so i like really blamed myself because i thought that it was because I, I went back to drinking and went back like i thought that it was because of that stuff that like I didn't attract the full picture of what I wanted, but that still, I was just so excited, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, I moved here before, uh, before the first semester and I I lived with my brother. He was going to law school downtown at Loyola law school. Okay. Let's, let's catch the fuck up. Okay. So college was a big party. You know, it was just, I didn't go to class. I like, I started taking meds for ADHD in college because it was just so bad. I was very reluctant. Um, Ironically, like I was like, I don't want anything to affect me and my state of mind, you know, (laughs) when I was like a full blown eating disorder and was partying and drinking and getting fucked up, you know. And then also in in high school, I, uh, I was very against weed, you know, I was like, I'm never, I don't do that. You know, like I was mm-hmm. too cool for weed. It was like below me. And, um, which ended up later becoming like my drug of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you end up getting to a place where you were able to cross that boundary that you had previously set against smoking weed? Oh, it's so funny because I don't know. I think college, I was just like, like another thing, <laughs> this might be very open, but, um, and I hope that my parents never listened to this. <laughs> but uh, in high school, I, you know, I did everything basically but sex. Okay. You know? Mm-hmm. And so until I was 18, I was like, I am saving myself for someone that I fall in love with. And like, it's going to be really special and yada, mm-hmm. yada. When I got to college everyone was like oh sex this and sex that and like sex is so amazing and I'm like yeah it's so amazing <laughs> you know <laughs> so I just wanted to like I wanted to be cool you know I, I didn't want to be the fucking loser virgin so before deciding to go against the previously set boundary against right me, you cross that with sex so yeah so so yes because it was like I started kind of just like saying I don't have bound like these boundaries are not you know, like that was a big deal for me. And so was weed. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, so then I think that kind of like shifted my mind a bit. And then, um, and then it was this really cute guy that I was in love with. Um, it's an unrequited love <laughs> and he smoked weed. And so it was my, my sophomore year. He was smoking out of this little pipe. I didn't know how to smoke out of this pipe. And so, um, I asked him to like light it for me, you know, and he's like low key. Celine's like actually a hardcore stoner, which is so funny, like foreshadowing <laughs> because I was not, I was not a hardcore stoner, but after that I was, you know, so, you know, my cousin had, um, a boyfriend who was dealing weed and had all these weed plants. And so she had some plants and um yeah i remember even like getting pulled over with the plants in my car you know and uh we were like we're just going to my grandma's funeral you know <laughs> and so we got away with it but um we smoked a lot of weed together my my cousin and i so 
So um, was it with this cute guy where when you started to enjoy smoking weed? Yeah, yeah. Do you think that it was, I guess, at first uh, a way to connect with this person? Yeah, that's the funny thing about weed, I think, is that I think it starts off as a very uh, social drug, mm-hmm. or, you know, um, where, you know, maybe alcohol does too, maybe it all does, but it feels very social smoking mm-hmm. weed, you know? It's like you're sitting around in a circle and everyone's like, whoa, this is the world, right? The universe and so cool. And it feels like you're connecting with these people because you're talking about all these wild things and these crazy ideas and outlandish plans. And um, yeah, it feels like you're connecting even more so than if you were drunk, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I would, you know, I smoked other people's weed for a long time until I started buying my own. And then when I started buying my own, it was like that I was smoking weed by myself, you know, Mm -hmm. all the time by myself. And then, um, you know, end of college, I ended up getting a DUI because I started a semester late. I think on some level I felt very inadequate about that. And so when all of my friends were celebrating, uh, you know, their graduation, I was, drinking champagne with them like full bottles to myself because I was like (laughs) I was I don't know I was just like grieving the fact that my friends are going to be leaving and I'm going to be alone and um, so I drank a lot that day and then I decided it would be a good idea to drive to the beach and try to you know think about my life and reflect very wasted and um drove back to my place and it it's so crazy that they say it's like literally within a mile of your house that you get pulled over that's exactly it was like less it was like mm-hmm. I was two minutes away from my house and I got pulled over for speeding and um you know then I I uh yeah I, you know I ended up in this uh I ended up in in jail <laughs> and um so after the DUI I was like, you know, I got bailed out and um, had to go to the impound lot to get my car, you know, and from there, I like... Who bailed you out? My dad. My dad bailed me out of a lot, a lot of stuff, Um, you know, maybe to my detriment in some ways. Um, but, um, so that was a small wake up call, but, um, but not enough. And so then I had a, you know, a boyfriend and this was like after, uh, maybe a, f- a few months after the, the DUI, I broke into his house. He, well, no, I, I was like upset because he made this, you know, it was like a student movie basically. And he, added this gratuitous sex scene (laughs) didn't need a sex scene I don't know but he added it so I was very upset and I came to his little premiere very drunk and um I was very very upset uh he came out to meet me I was very drunk and um he took my keys from me and then I was pissed you know that he took my keys and so 
I was banging on the door and then I was pounding on the window and I didn't realize how hard I was pounding. And so then I <laughs> broke the window and, um, and then I crawled through the window this with fucking broken glass. Like, I, I don't, I, I was so drunk, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then they called the cops on me and could have given me another DUI. I also was not allowed to be driving because my mm-hmm. license was suspended. Um, but I went to, I went to jail again and then it was a bit of a wake up call. I got this, you know, order from the judge to go to rehab, you know, it was like, this has happened, you know, back to back. So it looks like alcohol might be a problem, but I wasn't convinced that I was an alcoholic or anything, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I was 22. And then, uh, so I left this rehab on, on good terms with everybody, but I was like high all the time. And then I was, I was with this, this guy who was also a very serious drug addict. He was like, he was on fentanyl and I didn't even know what fentanyl, I didn't know that it was that big of a deal. I like tried it even, you know? Um, but he was a serious drug addict and we were, um, on and off. It was very chaotic, which a lot of my relationships were, um, one of them, you know, I, I ended up going to the psych ward in college, um, cause we broke up and then I got very wasted and threatened to kill myself and like all these things. And so, so, um, yeah, suicidal ideation since I was like in high school. Um, how did you cope with that? I guess the eating disorder was like a big way for me to cope with that. It was, uh, like I, I, I actually went to the psych ward when I was 15 too. So that was the first time I went to the, the psych ward cause I threatened to kill myself after college, after the rehab, um, getting out and then going back into the world, um, dating this guy being fucked up all the time, um, just led me to some really crazy places. Um, like I ended up on skid row somehow. <laughs> they had just gone through this crazy psychosis phase and um, also ended up in a psych ward. And this time, you know, my dad was like, I, you know, when I got there, and this is the, what I did in college when I also went to the psych ward with another relationship. Um, when I got there, I was like, I'm fine. I'm totally, I don't want to kill myself. I'm totally fine. Like, this is just a, a mistake you know this is a miscommunication whatever and my dad was there and he was like do not listen to her she's an actress you know and then they they kept me there for two weeks so you you have a very unique story and i certainly want to highlight the component of co-occurring disorders mm-hmm. and common misconceptions mm-hmm. around your dual diagnosis yes. so very briefly for anyone who might not know The term co-occurring disorder describes the combination of two or more substance use disorders and mental disorders identified in the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5. Let's talk about your diagnosis with borderline personality disorder. Yes. What led to it? How were you diagnosed? How old were you? Um, Yeah, so it's definitely, it's a diagnosis that they're like, afraid to diagnose a lot of a lot of psychiatrists 
I, yeah, I was diagnosed by a few different people, a few different psychiatrists. Um, cause they want to be sure, <laughs> you know, they didn't even diagnose it, you know, diagnose me with, with, uh, BPD. Then it was, uh, I did another like PHP partial hospitalization, um, out in Malibu and, I remember like convincing everybody that I was totally fine. That was was for substances. Yeah, it was for substances. But, uh, I remember telling everyone, I was like, I don't have some, I don't have a problem like you guys do. Like I'm, I have a, it's like a mental problem, (laughs) you know, like I have emotional issues there. They wanted to diagnose me with bipolar. Um, but that didn't really seem to fit because I didn't have like bouts of, depression or bouts of mania you know it was like I had a really hard time coping with my own reactions and they would be these intense things um you have to be like very guided you have to be very validated very um you know I grew up very invalidated I grew up with my uh you know my my brothers telling me I was stupid my my uh, my parents asking me to be like my brother, you know, like it was very invalidating. So um, I was diagnosed, um, I think it was after that, that PHP thing. Um, I think I, I actually I went home for a bit because I didn't know what my next move was. And... I just went nuts there. Were you sober after the partial hospitalization? No, no, no. I went absolutely nuts there. And um, because I was with my parents and I was like, I want to be back in LA. And um, I was just, I was itching. You know, you were talking about earlier how um, there's like a feeling of, of being so uncomfortable in your skin, you know, um, with addicts and like with, to an extreme, I think, with BPD and, and alcoholism. I was diagnosed, I think, like, when I, after I lived at home, um, I had, so I did attempt suicide, and I, you know, took a bunch of pills, like, like a bottle of Ritalin and a bottle of Trazodone. I didn't know what they were, you know, I didn't know, but I took a bunch of pills and, um, drank, like, two bottles of wine, and, um, I think I, I think, you know, I didn't really want to do it. I think I really wanted to be found, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I locked myself in this room, you know, and, uh, I made like a video that I, you know, was like a goodbye. And, um, my sister and my mom found me and, you know, by that time I was already passed out. I was, um, I was like blacked out, you know? So, you know what led you to that point yeah it was ugh, god I was just so like I felt like I was just burning on fire you know um without alcohol without anything I felt like um I had ruined these opportunities um I ended up in an eating disorder treatment um so this was like after the PHP after the you know um so a lot of therapy, a lot, a lot of therapy, a lot of like 
you know, professionals were hearing my story and, and stuff. And so, um, I think it must've been after, after that, um, that, that came, the eating disorder treatment came after, um, the suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of professionals are listening to your experience. Some of these traits that might be associated with borderline personality disorder. Right. You mentioned seeing quite a few professionals Mm -hmm. to, to actually acquire that diagnosis. Yeah. Right. What is it like living with borderline personality disorder or what are some of the common traits that Mm -hmm. you felt resonated with you with that diagnosis and how did it feel to receive that diagnosis? I, I felt finally like there's something that explains, you know, why (laughs) I've been so there's like, I'm not the only one in the world who's like this. I really thought that I was fucking crazy you know, um, and just alone for the first time it felt like, you know, well, actually the first time really I felt like, uh, there were other people like me was the first AA meeting that I went to and I was high and I was like court ordered to go after the first DUI. Um, everyone was so sensitive and like, I don't know. I I just, I was like, whoa, these, it's so crazy actually, because, you know, talking about modern prophets or whatever, I remember sitting in there thinking like, these people have some kind of superpower, mm-hmm. you know, they're like really ultra sensitive and they're handling, <laughs> they're handling it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it was very special and I was very stoned, but I, I, I could appreciate it. And so, so you you were um, diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, and you were still uh, using substances like mm-hmm. marijuana and, mm-hmm. and alcohol. And yeah, yeah. So I was, I was. Um, In what ways do those things interact? Because, as you can imagine, when borderline personality disorder co-occurs with addiction or substance use disorder, the effects of both are magnified. So, I guess I'm sort of wondering how that affected you. What led you to AA? <laughs> yes, right. Let's get to the fucking sobriety. <laughs> well, this um, is important. It's it is. Important. It is. So, um, ultimately, I, you know, I was in these chaotic relationships. Like I've, I've mentioned, I was dating this producer guy who was on fentanyl all the time, and we were on and off, and it was very. Um, this was towards the end of my drinking. And you were diagnosed with borderline personality disorder at what age? Um, I think I was like 23, 24. Okay. 23, 24. Yeah. So it was after, it was after the eating disorder treatment. I think maybe they might've sort of discovered that I had borderline personality disorder because eating disorders actually tend to be one of the, the symptoms. So, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, when I, when they go down the list of criteria, I've fit like all of them. Um, so you could like pull it up and I'd be like, yep, that, that, that. Um, In the DSM. Yeah. Okay. So like, you know, for example, um, the chaotic relationships often because um, there's this intense fear of abandonment and rejection and then 
you know, you go to any lengths to avoid real or imagined abandonment or rejection. So, you know, I would like break up with people and then because I was afraid that they were going to break up with me and then, and then, you know, there was this constant like push and pull that I would have in my relationships. My friend had flown from New York to come visit me and she was actually six months sober. And so I was trying to get sober and uh, I was struggling. I was struggling to get like a few days, five days. I just Mm -hmm. couldn't really do it. And so how did, how did the, the borderline personality disorder fit into the substance use at this point? Do you think it made it worse? Yes. 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 Because, you know, so like I said, stormy relationships. Um, so, you know, I turned 25. I was, you know, trying to get sober. My, my friend flew out. I had been through the fucking ringer. I'd been through the psych wards. I had almost died drinking alcohol. I'd been to the hospitals. I'd been to, you know, jail. I'd, I'd been through rehabs and all these fucking things and nothing really was clicking. And, um, I mean, I knew, but I was still not working. So I went to Miami with the guy and, um, thought that I could stay sober, but he was (laughs) a drug addict. And, um, shit went down um i broke a table on a balcony somewhere and then got sent to another hotel and then um yeah it was all just a a blur and then he was like he was like talk to me in a year when you get your one year chip you know like talk to me when you're a year sober this fucking guy (laughs) this guy is on fentanyl (laughs) you know so what was the impetus for ultimately deciding you were going to do anything you could to get better yes I get back and I was just desperate and I went to a meeting and um someone came up to me after and they're like my sponsor told me your bottoms when you stop digging you know and I don't know how or why but that clicked and my sponsor told me um she told me to, you know, if I couldn't get sober on my, on my own, then I might have to go to, um, to a rehab, you know? And so I, I heard that and I listened and I, I knew this time that I needed to be in an all women's rehab and I needed the like IOP or whatever to be in house so that I couldn't, cause I know myself, I know like these tricks that I would pull on myself. So, um, I found Casa Bella, which is where I met Lauren. Yeah. And then it was a couple months in, you know, I was feeling on fire. Like this is something that, that they talk about, like people with BPD, like untreated. It feels like your skin is, is burning. It feels like, you, you know, your, your skin is removed, you know, and you're walking in the world without the skin. And that's what it felt like, you know, it was like, I just felt like I was fucking burning all the time. My sponsor kind of helped me, um, just being, just her example helped me believe that there was like a chance that I could live a life that I, I wanted, you know, being mm-hmm. sober. Um, cause it wasn't working the other way. <laughs> so, so two months in, um, 
I was still feeling very intensely. They told me, you're either going to go to Clearview or, you know, you have to leave. And so I was like, how long? Oh, my God. How, how long do I have to go? This place was like even more locked down than, than where I was. Mm-hmm. And I had a DBT therapist um, that I just got started with. And she was like, you should go, you know. And I said, okay, fine. And I went for like two and a half months and I threw myself in. So very quickly. Yeah. Before we get into that. DBT, dialectical behavior Mm -hmm. therapy, is a comprehensive evidence-based treatment Mm -hmm. that's recognized as the premier treatment for borderline personality Mm -hmm. disorder. Research has shown that it's effective in treating a wide range of other disorders, including substance use disorder, depression, PTSD, eating disorders. Yeah. How has DBT residential treatment, Clearview in general, helped with your recovery journey? So um, it's helped significantly. I mean, I, I would say that it saved my life. You know, when I was in the, the DBT treatment, they taught me how to really think about what was leading to my behaviors, you know? So I started to kind of um, monitor the patterns that I was mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine in. that it's been incredibly difficult to unlearn 25 years of of maladaptive coping mechanisms yeah. particularly when thinking of overlapping traits associated with addiction and borderline personality mm-hmm. disorder so yeah it was like around 27 that um i i stopped binging and purging and like i began you know recovering more from from the eating disorder. So, you know, one of the tools that I used was, um, distract is like something that we learn in DBT. There's like a bunch of different, a bunch of different things that you can use, you know, um, use, you use your senses, you know, you change, um, change the scene, you know, go for a walk. Like some of these things are so stupid, simple, but like if you actually do it, it does, it does work you know um yeah there's so many things and 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 one thing too that <clears throat> like having people that i really admired and looked up to uh really ch- like changed my mind about things so it wasn't just that that actress who got me like to think to rethink aa but it was um the therapist that i had that got me to rethink, you know, borderline and DBT. So she was 17 years sober from heroin. She was so fucking cool. Like she just radiated cool. She was Mm -hmm. just like, just, just, she was just cool. And I trusted her, you know? So she had BPD and she overcame it. And so when she would tell me, like this works, I've tried it and I practice it and I do it, you know? And like, I, I trusted her, I believed her. I didn't believe a lot of people. Remember, I like, I hate rules. I don't listen to rules. I don't like authority, you know? I really liked her, I believed her. And um, she told me, you know, because I would still have these periods of like 
intense suicidal ideation and um you know it it was it was really difficult to imagine that I would you know she would tell me that's got to be an option that you take off the table you know and one day it will be you know um but I would have these intense you know moments of suicidal ideation and I never thought that you know like before I got sober it was every day it was very intense it was every day and it was maddening and um she told me that the intensity the frequency and the duration of these episodes will decrease over time if you do these if you do these steps if you do the work if you if you practice you know and I believed her so importantly I love that you are here to be a champion for and represent arguably two of the most stigmatized and misunderstood clinical diagnoses Mm. so in your opinion what are some of the main misconceptions surrounding borderline personality disorder and addiction what's something you wish other people understood yeah what I think one thing people think about BPD is they think of like fatal attraction you know Glenn Close people think of of that as like borderline Mm -hmm. um what would you say to those people I would say shut up no (laughs) I would you know I'd say that like untreated it can look pretty bad you know but really like there there is this you know it's a power it's a superpower like I I'm very sensitive and you know I can pick up on people's emotions pretty quickly yeah I think that's a really important point because what we now conceptualize in our current ecosystem as mental illness are actually traits Mm -hmm. that in another ecosystem might be very advantageous right they're just not advantageous at times or right now because of the world we live in because we live in this world that's sort of like you have to constantly be thinking sort of rationally about the consequences of x y or z Mm -hmm. it's such a sensory rich environment that we're constantly being bombarded with all of these sensory opportunities and we have to (laughs) constantly check ourselves so impulsivity sensitivity hypersensitivity um those are things that can be difficult traits to have now but aren't in and of themselves a bad thing and i think it also highlights some of the other really powerful important beautiful traits of people who deal with not just borderline personality disorder but also substance use disorder Mm -hmm, and that is mm -hmm. resilience yeah empathy right compassion right and then you you in particular you have really good um intuition yeah i mean very intuitive i hope so (laughs) i try (laughs) um but you're able to you know you know your high sensitivity to your surroundings makes you acutely aware of other people's emotional states which i think you know there and there are also moments where you wouldn't want to be super inhibited in emotional interactions with other people right i think that's a very powerful Mm -hmm, tool at mm -hmm. times but you know probably difficult to manage the other aspects of (laughs) these traits yeah right yes um for example that made me think because like you were saying there are times when you wouldn't want to be 
inhibited, right? Mm -hmm. But there were times that you would want to be right. inhibited, you know. So, so it's about balancing, right? You know, there are times that you that you want to be able to regulate, you know, um, in a job <laughs> interview, for example. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, actually, <clears throat> there was one time that um, I went to. I went to an audition and um, I met with the the casting director. Um, I was like, I'm really going through it. And I'm just like, I'm just going to be honest. Like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I don't know, you know, <laughs> like I am, I'm a mess. I don't know where I'm going to live. <laughs> you know, like he's like, that was very vulnerable, you know, maybe a little bit too much, but <laughs> like maybe you need to get some things in order first <laughs> um, <laughs> before you go telling people that, um, <laughs> which was very true. It's, it's a gift, you know, it's a gift. And, and with many gifts, I think there are, there are the, the drawbacks and the, mm -hmm. you know, the double-edged swordness of it, you know? Yeah. So what, what is the process of telling other people, disclosing the fact that you have these two co-occurring disorders? Are you ever nervous about their reaction with these so misconceptions yeah. in mind? Yes. Um, when I was dating people, it was, um, yeah, like I was sort of taking a new approach, you know, to my relationships. So I decided that I would just be very open and honest. You know, I, I told him that I had borderline and I had struggled with an eating disorder and, um, you know, the addiction, I just kind of told him like off the bat, you know, and he seemed very cool with it and he acted like he was very cool with it, but then he would throw it in my face mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, in the, the relationship whenever he could to make a point or whatever. And it was very, it was very cutting. So, um, the, la the next relation, which is the current, my, he's really my soulmate. Um, he's amazing, but, uh, I was very nervous to tell him that I had borderline. I was very cautious because I didn't want him to like use my faults against me. Um, when in reality, like if you're with someone who's going to use your faults against you, that's not the right person. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't until, you know, we started like dating. Um, so we had known each other for a couple months and then, um, it was maybe like two or three weeks into dating. I was like, by the way, I do have this thing. Um, it's a daily reprieve. <laughs> For both the alcoholism and he's he's also in the program too, so I think that makes him a lot more understanding and. Do you still do you feel like you still struggle with uh, difficulty in interpersonal relationships, romantically, platonically? <coughs> yeah, yeah, because um, so I also like there's a book, um, I think it's called "I Hate You Don't Leave Me." It's about borderline mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that is like that that was all all of my relationships I hate you don't leave me you know I hate you go away come back go away come back um and so yes my 
interpersonal relationships certainly have been affected not only by BPD but also ADHD because I'm really bad at at keeping dates and times and you know texts like if you look at my text it's like 200 and something (laughs) you know it's not good but I really do the best I can I'm trying you know but uh yes to your your question it does affect my my interpersonal relationships for sure and do you feel like with the skills that you've learned not only in in dialectical behavior therapy but also AA Mm -hmm. do you think that those have transferred and had a positive impact on your totally yes I would say even like last night is a good example um because you know as alcoholics I think um alcoholics tend to be you know we want to be isolated and that's that's the like intrinsic Mm -hmm. nature of of alcoholism is that it wants to separate you because you know in that space it can it can keep you in this dark hole and and then you might do mysterious dark things in that dark hole you know so it allows us to isolation allows us to protect that perverted sense of reality including our perception of self and to support and protect those false narratives which are intended to sort of rationalize irrational thinking and self-destructive conduct from being challenged we we build a metaphorical and even sometimes physical wall around it we isolate we isolate intellectually emotionally sometimes even physically totally and that's why they say secrets keep you sick in AA. So in July, you'll have six years of sobriety. Yeah. Yay. God willing. God willing. God One day willing. at a time. What does your life look like today? It's night and day. It's amazing. I I really love my life today, um, even when I don't. You mm-hmm. know, like when I don't, I look at it and I'm like, hold the, hold the fuck up. You know, hold the phone. This is... <laughs> not what I was this is not what I was in before like I would dream of this when I was you know dying inside so um it's a lot a lot a lot better I stayed sober since Casabella um it's funny because I was such a huge stoner I was like I mean I was wake up smoke weed all day every day I think second only to alcohol marijuana is the most popular and widely used drug yeah, in the I United States and for years it was believed that marijuana couldn't be addictive I know and many people still hold that belief yeah today even uh and it's tough because it can be used for medicinal purposes right. there are disposed dispensaries everywhere right, right. you know there's even like delivery apps I know, like, which I like Uber Eats, yeah, <laughs> but it's like for weed yeah um and thankfully, current research supports that marijuana is both physically and psychologically addictive. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah. And e- according to NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, cannabis or marijuana, mm-hmm. potency has steadily increased over the past few decades. A hundred percent. Let's talk about it. What did marijuana or, or even just drinking, using in general, what did that do for you? Weed really helped me come off of Adderall. So that's what it did for me initially. The way I was smoking weed, I, I like 
I couldn't do it and function, you mm-hmm. know, because um, okay. that's all I wanted to do. Yeah, I woke up every day, wake and bake all day, every day. And that's like, you know, that's all I would do. I just like, you know, I, I would go through like an eighth in two days or something. And um, it was expensive, too. But uh, yeah, so I wanted weed. I wanted weed all the time. Like. You know, we would, when I was in college, after college, I would go to the clubs with my friends, you know, and I would, I just wanted to be high. I would, you know, I did cocaine here and there. I did, um, you know, we would get fucked up. I would get wasted. Alcohol got me into trouble. You know, the DUIs, the the jail incidents, the like psych ward shit. Alcohol got me into trouble, but, but weed, I was massively addicted to you know we would go to the clubs and go to the after parties and at like 2 a.m 3 a.m all my friends were like looking for cocaine and I was desperate to find weed you know and they're like everyone's like why you're gonna fall asleep (laughs) you know why would you want to fall asleep when everyone is high on coke and I don't know I just I just wanted weed I just wanted to be high all the time I was I was a mess inside, you know. Did you feel like marijuana had a negative impact on your life? And if it weren't for things that got you into trouble, like you said, alcohol. Yeah. Do you think that you would be sober? I That's such a good question. I don't know because um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I it's hard to. It's hard to imagine because... Well, let's start with the part, the first part of that question. Yeah. Do you feel like it had a negative impact on your life? Yes, definitely. Um, I was going to work high. They knew it. I acted like I wasn't, but I was fucking high. I would forget things. I would like, you know, um, I was a, a waitress. Um, I just couldn't really keep a job because... I was stoned mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't appealing. It wasn't attractive, you know, like I was just gone most of the time. And so that was, you know, hard to be in a relationship with hard to be, you know, a friend because even if I was, you know, like my good friends, my, my best friend got sober around the same time um, that I did. And, she's still sober. It's, it's awesome. I was with her last night, but, um, we would, you know, get fucked up together and she was more into pills and I was like weed. And I just, I, I know that like I wasn't present for her ever, you know, like even when we were talking, I wasn't there, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, I just wanted to be high. And if I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I wanted, you know, if, if I was high, I wanted to be higher, you know, mm-hmm. um, I was never high enough. A transient solution to this thing called happiness, which I think is an interesting concept in and of itself, because I contend that, you know, the relentless pursuit for happiness, for a happy life. I think if you ask someone, you know, what they ultimately want out of this human experience, Mm -hmm. they'll tell you, I just want to be happy, (laughs) you know? And I think that that leads to a false perception of the human experience. 
that we must always strive to be happy makes it more difficult to endure pain and to experience more fleeting moments of joy, mm-hmm. which I think life really is. That's yeah. what life is. It's not, you know, it wouldn't be natural to always be happy or always be high, you know? Right. Yeah, so being fed this cultural narrative causes us to relentlessly pursue pleasure to the point where our lives ultimately become more painful, mm-hmm. I think, by virtue of, you know, our pain, pleasure, balance, wanting to restore a level balance yeah homeostasis so yeah it's it's interesting because um what you what you said about you know in this pursuit of of pleasure because that's kind of what we're like hardwired for mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a different way i feel like i'm used to hearing it because i feel like for a while it's been like you know we are in this state of fear right and so um, we're not being chased by a tiger. And so, you know, we're in this state of fear. And because we're in these st- super states of fear, we're escaping and we're avoiding and we're because we think we're being chased by a tiger. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the fear. I think, you know, you're right. I think it's like there's there's um, a need to, there's like a dis- desperate need to feel pleasure, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you think that in your recovery journey you had to come to this acceptance of life being a little bit hard Mm -hmm. yeah and having to deal with with painful moments in your life and not being constantly happy or distracting yourself or you know yes looking for respite in drugs or alcohol I think um the way it was in my life before it was like you know if you if you saw a graph it would be like you know a climb, a climb, a climb, a climb, a climb, a climb, a, climb, a, climb, a, climb, a spike, and then drop, and then a little bit of, and then a climb, a climb, a spike, drop, spike, drop, you know, just like these high ups and high, you know, high ups, low, low, low lows, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's just so exhausting, and it's not, it's not pleasant, if anything, you know, like, if that's, if seeking pleasure you know, like I'd, I'd rather be like seeking pleasure is not pleasant, <laughs> you know, if that's the ultimate goal, yeah. because it's this like hectic lifestyle. And, you know, I've I've tried to find a homeostasis mm-hmm. um, and my graph looks a little bit more varied, you know, it looks a little more like waves instead of giant mountains, you know. What do you think your life would look like today if you never got into treatment or you weren't I'd be in dead. recovery? I would be dead. 100%. Not even like by, if not by, um, you know, some crazy scenario that I ended up in. Like I had a gun in my face when I was fucked up at one point. You know, like I ended up in sk- weird situations. Um if it wasn't by my own, like by my own doing something crazy, ending up in these weird situations, um, it would be by my own hand, you know. What piece of advice would you give to someone who is in the same cycle of suicidal ideation, mm. drug use, struggling to manage these complex emotions? 
I know it's so hard to that's that's a good question I never know how to answer that and I think a lot of people don't know how to answer that because it seems very it seems very personal and unique um like we don't really know what it is that tips the scale but um you know like for me it was it wasn't the the hospitals the jails the institutions it was it was the idea of losing my friends you know losing my friendships and um and being you know broken up with because of this thing and and then someone telling me just stop fucking digging (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. like you don't have to keep digging to make this worse and that's something I actually I think in DBT I, I learned that um we definitely know how to make things worse. I know exactly what to do to make things worse, you know, and I can be fantastic at that, you know, but if I can just, if all I can do, if all I can fucking do is just manage to not make things worse and that's all I can focus on for the day, you know, I think that that's how you can get through that's how you can get through the the beginning of you know what seems to be a very difficult road mm-hmm. you know yeah and i think you also bring up an important point if we knew exactly what to tell that person in that moment in time we would save a lot of people right and unfortunately it's not as cut and dry as mm-hmm. that you know there's not just one moment i think a lot of it has to do with just someone's experience and living those moments and collecting those experiences Mm -hmm. all together to finally come to a moment of like holy shit I can't do this anymore yeah and then you know something that that does sometimes hit people is that you don't have to you know Mm -hmm. if you don't want to do it anymore you really don't have to I and I and I want to talk about this uh, just a bit more Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this aspect of choice Mm mm-hmm because I think as much as you might not have a choice to use, uh, choose to drink, choose to smoke weed, choose to do a particular behavior, engage in a particular mm-hmm. behavior, you do have this choice to hand it over to someone else, mm-hmm. to a higher power, to mm-hmm. a person in your life right. that can help you. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, uh, you know, because like I said, it's this thing that wants to isolate you, you know, and wants to keep, wants to keep itself alive, right? Um, And hide and stuff. So the best way of hiding is like, you know, they say like the best trick the devil ever played was making you believe that he didn't exist kind of thing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Um, That's that's I think when you're in that mindset that um, I got this under control, you know, like I can do this. I can manage this on my own. You know, um, I don't need someone else. I don't need a higher power. I don't need anybody to help me do this. I can do it. You know, Um, that's where you get lost, you know, because. First of all, if you just stop and logically think about it for a second, which is difficult if you're if you're high and fucked up to logically sometimes think about things. Mm-hmm. 
if you logically think about it, this has helped a lot of people, millions of people get and stay sober, you know, and it's a very simple, simple program. So, you know, why wouldn't it work if you just tried it? If you don't try it, you're not going to know, you know, if you try it, you might find out, you know, whether or not it works for you, but you have to actually try it honestly, you know, and uh, that's part of the rigorous honesty. I think it's like you have to be honest with yourself first and foremost. Step one. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the choice. Right. Is like willing willingness, mm-hmm. willing to admit that our lives had become unmanageable. You know, what was the hardest part of recovery for you to accept? Um, I know it's crazy because I actually was so young, you know, 25 is young to get sober compared to, you know, a lot of people. You're get how old sober. now? 31. 31. Okay. I look 21 though. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think it was time for me. It mm-hmm. was like, uh, what I regretted was that I wasted time, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't really get back time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just went on so many detours that I like, I could have been chasing my dreams. I could have been, you know, somewhere further ahead, you know? Um, but it all happens the way it's supposed to, I think, you know? Um, and I definitely have a lot more experience, (laughs) you know, than I did when I was young and I was kind of scared of the world. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything else that you wanna to share with everyone before we before we end? Um, I love you all, and Godspeed, good luck, and um, yeah, follow your bliss. I think you have to have something to look up to, and I think that's important. I think that not just something to look up to, but like. You have to live a life worth living. And that's what they all t- they teach you in DBT. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you the, the ultimate goal is to design this life, you know, that that is worth living, that you want to live for, that you don't want to kill yourself, you know? Yeah. And the same thing in AA, they say, you know, happy, joyous, and free. And that's what everyone's striving for, you know? Whether we say, you know, happy is a fleeting thing. It's, it's joy, really. Like, follow the joy. Follow mm-hmm. the bliss. Mm-hmm. And um, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that it doesn't come with the, the pain, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm happy to help anybody who needs it. Thank you, Sue. Mm, thank you. This has been Ryan Keneally with the Modern Profits Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and follow the podcast as it really helps spread the wisdom and make an impact.